Welcome to the Success in South Carolina podcast, where we will be hearing the untold stories of success from people in our community. These successful neighbors of ours will share their real-life philosophies and solutions for success to inspire us, educate us, and help us find peace, joy, and love, along with a purpose, a mission, and a vision for our lives. And I'm your host, Jonathan Peoples. Our guest today lives in South Carolina with her two spoiled rotten dogs, Guinness and Murphy. She is the founder and the CEO of Iquity, a 360 leadership review app, which helps every individual reach their potential. She's the author of the acclaimed book, Instinct, which teaches us to rewire our brain with science-backed solutions to increase productivity and achieve success. She is the full-time speaker and facilitator of her Fearless Accelerator program, which leads high achieving women through stress, fear of failure, and the imposter syndrome to a place of confident and authentic leadership. She has spoken at many international world-class events, including Vistage Worldwide and multiple TED Talks. Her research has been designated as transformative by the National Science Foundation, and it is waking up listeners around the world. She is dedicated to helping us overcome our ancient fears that hold us back, fears that are so deeply ingrained into our subconscious that we may be unaware we even have them. I'm excited to share with our listeners today and let you hear her stories and her professional opinion on how to overcome those fears that may be holding you back. Welcome to the show, my new friend, Dr. Rebecca Heiss. Woo! Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm very excited to have you, Rebecca. One of the things that I have a, a, a genuine curiosity about, and maybe this might lead us into our discussion, but you got your PhD in, in biology yeah. and your, your career started as a teacher and a professor. <laughs> yeah. What made you change course to become an author, a founder of a leadership app and a professional speaker? Yeah, it's a great question. It's a it's a bit of a pivot. You know, it's not exactly that nice parallel line that most people think of in, in terms of careers. I have definitely right. a squeeze career. Um, you know, I, I was given really good advice as a kid, which was to follow your passion. Right. And we, we say that all the time and it was meant as good advice. The problem with that good advice is if you don't have a real passion, you just kind of go where you're decent and where things that you're good at. And I was pretty good at the sciences. So I just kind of kept in degrees and, you know, a lot of sort of cultural messaging was, well, once you achieve and you achieve and you achieve, you'll be happy. And so it's like, OK, I'll just mm. keep degrees. And at some point I, you know, will have achieved the highest degree and I'll be happy. And um, and it turns out, you know, I'd kind of done that. I, I had my Ph.D. I had a couple of masters behind me and um, I was you know, in academia in some pretty nice positions. I'd had the opportunity to, to help found a school. I'm married. I'm living in this beautiful house. And I'm like, all right, where's my happy? Right. Like I've earned it now. Come on. And about that time, um, unfortunately, my my sister-in-law, who was like a sister to me, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And in the span of about a month, I quit my job, sold my house and divorced my husband. Because what I realized in that moment, it took me my whole life up to that point to recognize it was that all of the decisions that I'd been making, I'd been making out of fear, right? Like, oh, I'd never make it in the career that I really wanted. I, I just, I'll just do what I, I think I'm supposed to do. And I guess we all have that diagnosis at, at some level, right? We're, we're not getting out of here alive. But it really hit home to me if that diagnosis had been mine. You know, this is this is not the legacy that I'd want to live. 
And so uh, I started living the way I would if, you know, there's country songs written about it, right? Living like I'm dying and and truly living wholeheartedly and in, in, in integrity. And so what that led me to was uh, the career that I have now, which I'm not going to say it was a pretty and easy time to get through, but it was a really wholehearted time where I was living very presently and very, very in integrity with what I wanted to do. That's a, that's a lot of change yeah. all at once. Yeah. Does that, does that leave, I don't know, trauma that you have to, I mean, or is that something that's, it was shackles that you've been holding you down and it's freeing to, to release all those things, which maybe it's a little combination of both too. I think it's a combination of both, but I, I think definitely more, more so the latter, you know, I, I talk a lot more, um, I talk a lot about fear in my, in my work now. And yeah. often we're, we're really good at measuring the cost of action. Like, Okay, I if I divorce my husband, if I quit my job, here's all the fears, here's all the ways that I'm going to be societally rejected and academically rejected and looked down upon. And we're really good at measuring that. Where I think we fail is in measuring the cost of inaction. What if what if I don't do it? What if I just kind of exist my way through life? Mm. And most people forget to measure that. And we end up laying on our deathbeds, like hearing this silent siren of regret going, ah, why didn't I, why didn't I? So I think, you know, by and large, maybe there's, maybe there's some trauma, but I I think by and large, because I actively and consciously made that choice, it was a huge gift to myself to, to begin to really recognize the, and, and truly pay attention to um, those costs of inaction that I was giving up every day. That's amazing. When you mentioned the cost of inaction, I like to term it drifting through life, right? And I I borrow and stole that from one of my favorite authors, a guy named Napoleon Hill. He wrote a book called Outwitting the Devil, and it is amazing if you've never read it. Awesome. Um, but uh, but yeah, he talks about drifting and how that that's one of the one of the biggest we talk about. We're coming out of a pandemic. He said that's the biggest pandemic that's going on in the world is that people are being fooled into inactivity, just drifting and being OK with the the norm and the average. Oh, man, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Adam Grant wrote about that, too, in this New York Times article recently, this like this languishing feeling the like, yeah, <laughs> I I always go back because I'm a 90s kid. Like, well, I'm an 80s kid, but really the ditto. 90s. Right. The the 90s is the era. But I always think of a flagpole sitter, right? Like, I'm not sick, but I'm not well. Mm. I'm not sick, but I'm not well. I'm just kind of meh. I'm just kind of in that languishing. I'm drifting. I'm just. And to me, I mean, that's that's not life. Be really sick or be really well. Hopefully you spend a lot fewer days at the really sick level. But, you know, if we are going to play all in with our lives, you're going to get hurt. That's the risk. That's the cost of admission to a a full in life. And so for me, all right, hopefully those days are minimized, but I know I'm going to get hurt. I know my heart's going to be broken. I know I'm going to fail. Okay. That pain is not nearly as terrifying to me as the pain of not going all in, of not trying, of not throwing my hand in and and giving it a go. Yeah. So the pain of uh, discipline versus the pain of regret, right? Yeah, sure. Sure. You can, you can measure it that way too. As long as, and, and you know, discipline is a tough word for me. <laughs> maybe, maybe that tells you a lot about my character, but to me, like discipline, yes, you need discipline to be successful. Yes. You've got to show up and do the hard work, but if it always feels hard, I want to challenge people to question that. Like if your work always feels hard, are you, you 
doing what you want to do? Because for me, I'll just launch in that the true definition of success, right, is being able to spend the majority of my time in wholeheartedness and joy. That's it. Wholeheartedness and joy, the majority yeah. of the time. And so if if I have to discipline myself to do the things every day, mm, I'm not sure that's wholeheartedness and joy. It sounds a little soft. I get yeah. it. I get it. But um, but if you're if you're if you're not sure what brings you joy, if you're going to just pound your way through life, I mean, that's an option. It's not my choice. Yeah. Not yeah. And so, in other words, if it's a grind, but it doesn't bring you joy at the end of that grind or what uh, one of my I've got a couple of values in life that I hold dear. And one of them is journey over destination. Uh, right. Yeah, sure. That's it. I mean, that's, so if you if you can't fall in love with the journey, then you won't be happy at the end in the destination. Is that what you're saying right there, Rebecca? Yeah, there's a lot of that. So, I mean, when we look at the the research, I get really nerded out about this kind of stuff. But this kind of like hedonic treadmill idea, it's what I was chasing. You know, when I was younger, I'm like, I'm chasing approval. I'm chasing the almighty, you know, degree or, or whatever it is that I'll finally be happy when I'll be happy when I hit this goal. Or as soon as I hit that goal, I'm looking to the next one. Well, I'll be happy when this. And it's really easy to get into that cycle of, you know, looking for the outcome, looking for the outcome and miss the whole entire journey. But I would also push back and say, you know, there's there's three types of defined, quote unquote, fun. Type one fun is the type of fun that, you know, you instantly recognize as fun. It's like having a drink with your buddies um, or uh, kicking back and spending a day at the beach. Like people go, oh, yeah, that's that's fun. I, I recognize that. But type one fun actually doesn't lead to a purposeful, like fulfilled life. Hmm. What scientists have measured is that it's actually the type two fun. It's what you just said, the grind. Now, here's the here's the asterisk that I'm going to throw in there. If it feels like a grind the whole time, like I don't I don't love hiking up hills. I don't. But there is this kind of good feeling, the soreness of my muscles as I'm doing it that I can tap into as I'm doing it, not just when I reach the top of the mountain, but like as I'm doing it, even though it feels like work, I'm like, yeah, we're doing the thing. That's type two fun. And it's not immediately a dopamine high. It's not like, yeah, I feel great doing this. It's that it's that little bit of grind, but you know, deep down inside, it's leading to something purposeful. And to me, that's that's the daily grind that we should be seeking, not the soul sucking for me emails, right? Emails, that's the soul sucking part of the work that I, I just get done. It's just one hour right. that's what I'm going to do. Um, and then beyond that, I'm like, all right, the rest of my time, I'm going to find joy and wholeheartedness. Right. And it can be tricky because the advice you got, follow your passion can, can be a little tricky because your passion can, first of all, be fleeting and it can jump from one thing to another. I prefer the phrase, bring your passion with you wherever you go. Yeah. I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot, you know, and I'll, I'll add one of the, I think I stole this from somebody and I think it was Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm going to, I'm going to attribute it to her. She had the similar problem of like, follow your passion. She's like, I don't know what my passion is. And it's really follow your curiosity. Because the reality is, if you're willing to be curious, first of all, curiosity and fear can't coexist. So that's a great start. And the reason for this is our brain literally is not set up for fear and curiosity at the same time. Um, it didn't evolve that way. Nobody in 200,000 years of human evolution ever looked at a tiger charging them and went, huh, like, I wonder how fast it's coming. You know, like, it's just not, 
It's not built into our brains. So if we follow our curiosity, first of all, we're not following a path of fear. And second of all, you might just stumble onto your passion, right? Because if you're curious enough to start asking questions and digging in, then you might enjoy it for a little bit. And when it's self-made enjoyable, you follow your next curiosity. But, you know, very infrequently, I think, do people know from, you know, when they're five years old or even 18, when we're asking kids to go to college and pick a career and figure out your passion, like that's a really hard thing for most people to do. So I think if we can stay open and curious, um, we're more likely to be successful as, as I would define success. Um, and, and ultimately like spending time in, in wholeheartedness and joy, ultimately, when you look at the research around happiness, you're more financially successful too. You're more relationally successful. You know, you have better relationships. Um, your health is better. So those are all measures of success that I, I like to check on my boxes there. You know? <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And you talk about breaking through BS using brain science to reveal oh, yeah. these blind spots. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, a lot of my research is based in evolutionary psychology. So my background is in evolution, human behavior. And when we think about the world that we live in, I, I have this evolutionary lens of like, okay, well, how does our brain interpret all of all of the world around us? Well, it's it's not good. <laughs> it's not good because our brain isn't built for this world, this modern world with all this technology and advancements. It's built for the land, the world of our ancestors, right? Which was scarce and sparse and dangerous. And we lived with about 150 other people that all thought like us, looked like us, acted like us, um, our tribe, right? And anybody that didn't think like us or look like us, they were real threats. You know, they were coming over to kill us or steal all of our resources. And and so like all of these, these thoughts that we have around diversity, around um, even being curious, curiosity killed the cat. There's a reason for that, right? Um, or change. Change is one of the most dangerous things for our brain, at least our brain registers to that. It's not. Today, we live in this abundant, like incredibly safe thing, place. The news might tell you otherwise, but the reason we think that we live in this such a dangerous space is really because that's what our brain craves. It's like, it's always on the lookout for what can kill us because that's what kept us alive. Now, we have this amazing ability to actually shift our focus and recognize, oh, we don't just have to focus on survival. We can thrive. We can look on at all the positives, at all the opportunities, at all of these connections that we can make. But we've got to get our brain out of that fear scarcity mode. That's good stuff. Let me yeah. so so let me jump into what might be uh, an odd question, Rebecca. I like odd questions. So you talk a lot about evolution and the the evolution of our brain or our circumstances or just humankind. It, it, in totality, only 39% of Americans even believe in evolution. And here in South Carolina, only 16% believe in evolution. So the question is, can someone who does not believe in evolution still benefit from your teachings about self-awareness, overcoming these hidden fears and all those things? Sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you, you don't have to even believe in evolution to, to hear what I just heard, what I just said, right? Your brain for however long, however long you want to believe that humans have been around for, right. uh, it's a it's a short period of time that that we've lived in this modern environment. Right. And so, if our brains are optimized for for survival, it's it's really tough. Independent of any of that, 
Uh, if you don't believe in, in evolution, that's fine. Let's, let's talk about some solutions. You're probably feeling stressed. You're probably feeling overwhelmed. You're probably feeling like you're languishing. You're probably in that space of hearing those voices in your head that are like, dude, dude, you're going to get rejected and you're going to fail. Maybe don't go all in. You know, all of these, these, we, that is common across cultures globally. Humans hear those same stories. So, so all of my, my workshops, my techniques, they work with the voices in your own head. Right. And it turns out, doesn't matter where they came from. Right. Something about it. And the cool thing is with modern technology, we can see that the brain changes in real time. So right now your brain is different than it was 30 seconds before you heard me say that sentence. Right. That's awesome. Right. So what that means is it's live wired. So you right now today can begin to train your brain towards behaviors that you want to enforce and away from behaviors that you want to get rid of. And that's incredibly empowering, but it also places a lot of responsibility on our own shoulders, right? To really train ourselves to, to do the, the work that we need to do. How do we do that? <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you my three-step the simple technique, right? There's a lot to do, but for me, um, I think one of the easiest ways to do it is, is doing your ABCs. So here's what I mean by this throughout the day. All I want you to do is whenever you think about this, I actually set alarms to do this, um, because it's that important. Uh, when the alarm goes off or whenever you sort of become conscious, uh, I want you to go a awareness, just be aware. Ask if it's a tiger. Is there a tiger charging me right now? Is there, am I in a life and death situation? Because if you're not in a life and death situation, the stress response that you're feeling, that anxiety, that elevated heart rate, the sweat, the, it's not helping you. Your fight, flight, freeze response is built to help you get away from a stressor. You can't get away from email. You can't get away from deadlines. So the modern environment actually is not helping or conducive to this stress response that we have. And we have this, unfortunately, generalized stress response. We respond exactly the same to every threat. So whether it's an argument you're having with your spouse or your fear that your kid is getting rejected in school or your own fear that you're going to get up and, and do some public speaking and screw it up, like you respond exactly the same. So when we're aware of the fact that, oh, None of that, even if I bumble and screw up the talk, even if my kid, none of these are life-threatening situations. Cool. Then we get to move on to B, the second step. So B is take a breath. Now, this is literally everybody's least favorite part, right? Because they're like, come on, you're a stress physiologist. There's got to be something better than breathing. Nah, there's not. Here's the thing. We don't value our breath because A, it's free and you have access to it. And so I, I joke sometimes I'm going to start charging people for their breath um, because they would actually do it more. But the breath is incredibly valuable. It's, um, it's the only thing that connects our subconscious and our conscious minds. So we breathe subconsciously all day long, which is great, by the way, because if you had to breathe consciously all day, you just sit there going, right, you wouldn't get much done. Right. But we can pause and take this conscious breath. And when we do, what it does is it activates this frontal lobe where we're making conscious cognitive decisions from. Like all of the subconscious stories and shortcuts that that exist back here. Now we're highlighting the, the portion of our brain that we want to use to make a cognitive decision in the moment. 
Now, I like to give people a specific type of breath to do. Um, the one that I, I use is called a physiological sigh. And it's the only type of breathing that we've measured in the lab to reduce cortisol. That's your, your main stress hormone instantaneously. So that's pretty cool. Like if you want to reduce your stress immediately, you can do it in about 15 seconds. So uh, I'll teach you how. Can you really show, I was going to say, can you sh- yeah. share that with our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So normally throughout the day, you know, you you breathe kind of shallowly and you get a little bit anxious and you breathe more shallowly throughout the day. And ultimately what what is happening is actually the tips of your lungs are collapsing. So the alveoli where gas exchange occurs are literally trapping CO2 in your body. And then your gas exchange gets out of whack. And so you breathe even more shallowly and this exacerbates the whole cycle. It resets when you go to sleep. It would be great if you could reset that throughout the day. And that's the purpose of the physiological sigh. So the first step is to pop open those alveoli and get the ox or the CO2 out. And how we do that is we breathe through our nose as deeply as we can. When you can't take in any more oxygen through your nose, you're going to open your mouth and actually get that last bit of air. So you might actually go like you get that last little bit in. And when you do that, if you do it properly, you'll actually create a vacuum. And so you won't be able to help it. Uh, CO2 is just going to start pouring out of your mouth. Cool. Keep it going. Let it go. You just did it. Awesome. That's one. Right. So we actually, let's do it together. Even though people can't see, why don't you sure. try it? listeners? All right. So just sit wherever you are, sit straight, take a nice deep breath in through your nose. Here we go. You can't take in any more oxygen. Open your mouth. That last bit. This is going to be awesome to listen to. <laughs> if you do two of those sides, I promise you, so you're probably already feeling looser already. Yeah. It loosened my shoulders as I was releasing that CO2. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So now you're ready to make a good conscious cognitive choice, which brings me to step three or the C and the ABCs. And that is curiosity, which will not surprise you because you heard me say before, right? Curiosity and fear cannot coexist. You can't be curious. They actually are are in opposite lobes of the brain. So fear and language and and analytical processing is on one side of the brain. Creativity and curiosity lives on the other side of the brain and never the two shall meet. So if you are stuck in this fear, you have a really tough time getting curious. So I'll do some exercises with people sometimes and I'll get them kind of in a stressed out state. Usually I ask people to do math out loud. It's super scary. Right. If I was just to give you like math problems to do out loud for your listening audience right now, it probably elicit a stress response. In fact, <laughs> I won't do that to you. <laughs> Thank I you. Do it. I won't do it. But you're you're probably feeling a little stressed right now, right? Are you? I'm well, pretty good at math. I don't love it, but I'm pretty uh, good. At math. Okay. Well, if I do this sequence of problems and then I ask them a wide open question, like quick, name a color and a tool. Color and a tool. Name a color and a tool. Come on, name a color and a tool. Go. Name yeah. a color tool. Pink hammer. There it is. Every single time. It's hammer. Usually mm-hmm. it's red hammer. So your listeners can have hopefully have played along there. It's it's usually red or blue, hammer, wrench, or drill. I never get phone, pencil, lavender, washing machine. Like there's there's no creativity because when we're under stress, our brain narrows, our thinking wow. narrows. We literally see less peripheral vision. So, so this idea of getting out of fear is not just so that we feel good. It's actually so that we function at our highest creativity and optimize performance. That is awesome. 
I love the quote from Socrates that says to know thyself is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. And Dr. Rebecca Heiss is an expert in self-awareness in your, in your professional opinion, why is self-awareness so important? Because people don't, people aren't aware. (laughs) Here's why, because, because it's great information because you, you don't know how you come across to other people until you know how you come across to other people. And when you know that you can operate from uh, your best skill sets in various situations. So let me give you an example. Actually, uh, this is this is fun. This is why I, I created the app that I did because 95% of us believe that we are self-aware. That's fun, right? 95%. Yeah. How many people do you think are actually self-aware? 10%. Wow. 10%. Now, all of us are probably sitting here listening going, well, I'm among I'm part of that 10%. Right? <laughs> Guess what? There's some news. You probably aren't right. That's that's a really painful realization. But I don't think I think the reason so many people are are not self-aware is that it can be a very challenging thing to get information on. If I asked you, hey, how'd this interview go? Jonathan, yeah. you're kind of on the spot to like mm, be. I think so it went well. Nice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, you're great. It was so much fun. And so especially as leaders or CEOs or, or entrepreneurs like it's hard to get that feedback because people are kind of telling you what, sorry, telling you what you want to hear. So, um, so I created this app that, that helps you kind of understand who you are and how you show up in the world. And it's super scary. Yeah. Right. Because if I send out an anonymous survey, I've rated myself one to 10 on like humor and listening skills and say empathy. I don't know. And I send it out to my friends, family, colleagues, coworkers. They have to rate me. That's like I'm going to get that feedback. It is. It's terrifying. But again, it's not the. That's not the fear we need to focus on. The fear we really need to focus on is the fact that they're going to think I'm a two out of ten on humor, whether I know that or not. Mm. Right. So if I am aware of that, if I collect that data, if I actually get this self awareness, now I can do something about it. If I'm showing up trying to use humor every time and it's it's falling flat, isn't it valuable to know that information? Very valuable. Power, right? But it's so scary. Wow. So that app is something, it's not just in the HR realm or corporations. Individuals can use that app. Absolutely. And I encourage them to. Um, I joke that I joke sometimes that I created a product that a, nobody believes they need because, right, 95% of us think we're self-aware. And yeah. then when they realize, people realize that they do need it. They're way too scared to do it. <laughs> so right. they're like, mm, no, I'm not going to touch it. So, yeah, please. I mean, I encourage your listeners to, to give it a shot. It's uh, are, there, are there any maybe hints that we might not be self-aware? Are there any things, any red flags that we can look for in ourselves or in in our surroundings that might tip the fact that, because I personally think that it's probably those people that are self-aware that think they're not self-aware. Am I, am I wrong there? That's actually true. Yeah, that's actually true. So you do see this, um, there's a specific type of curve that is, that talks about exactly this phenomenon. Dunning-Kruger curve, I think is, is what it's called. We're basically People that think they're really good at something usually aren't. And it's the imposters, the people that feel like imposters, that they're not all that great. They're actually a whole lot better than they think they are. So um, in terms of your, your first question, you know, are there tips or, or clues? You, there usually are, but the people aren't self-aware enough to pick up on them. And so, you know, it's kind of asking like, what don't you know? 
Right. I don't know what I don't know. So, you know, this is, this is why these tools I think are so, so invaluable. Yeah. I feel like anytime I come out of an interview, uh, even interviewing you, Rebecca, my wife's going to ask me afterwards, how did it go? And I'll be like, I don't know. I think it went well, but because I, uh, you talk about this imposter syndrome and I'd like to go into more depth on that, but I feel like that most successful people I know, when I get down to the real core of it, they feel like that they're a fraud, that they're going to get found out any single moment. Yeah. And this is, I, I actually, I'm applauding that because it's so good to be talking about it. I think that is the the biggest prescription we can offer for imposter syndrome is the recognition that you know Tina Fey, um, pick pick your pick your celebrity Maya Angelou, like these incredibly accomplished men, women, CEOs, poet laureates, you know, creative types, all of them are experiencing imposter syndrome and saying, you know, I just got lucky. I just, I, I it wasn't anything about me. I just some point somebody's going to figure out that I'm a fraud. And so this is uh, what's known as pluralistic ignorance in that we all think this way and we all don't know that everybody thinks this way. And so when we're willing to admit it and be like, yeah, I totally feel like an imposter every single day. Actually, it it does the exact opposite of what we expect it to do. We're afraid that people will think less of us or will um, judge us for not having those really strong traits and characters of like, I, I have clarity. I have, and the reality is people are like, Oh, really? Oh, I'm so relieved because that's how I feel. And we create this connection. And that is one of the strongest things that you can do as a leader. Do you think that something else that helps with identifying self-awareness is surrounding yourself with people who are in a position where you want to be? Cause then if you can maybe uh, compare and contrast where, what do they do? How do they walk? What do they wear? Things like that. And you're like, maybe I'm not the person I want to be. If, if that's what it takes to be what I want to be. Do you think that there's, I mean, obviously there's downsides to comparing too, yeah, but are there, are there pros and benefits to, to that? I think that gets dangerous, especially because there's, um, there's a lot of cultural norms that we don't really even recognize. I talk about it as like the water that we swim in. So there's this, there's this story about these two young fish swimming along in the water, right? And an older fish comes swimming by, tips his fin their way and says, hey, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a little while longer. And finally, one turns to the other and is like, dude, what's, what's water? Because we don't even recognize that we're surrounded by certain systems. Right. And like in, in leadership um, in particular, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, but I, I'll say it because I did the research <laughs> in part because I was researching like how to how to market my book um, as a leadership book. And so I looked at the top 10 leadership books from the last 10 years and 93% of them are written by white men. Now, white men listening, there's nothing wrong about that. Like for you, you're, you're not wrong, right? Like Simon I can't Sinek, change that about me. Yeah. Yeah. Simon Sinek <laughs> is brilliant. And I absolutely want to read his book. Right. The trouble is if that is the model for leadership, when I show up, I automatically feel like an imposter with any of the feminine traits that I'm bringing because I don't fit the model. When uh, an African-American person shows up, when a gay or bisexual or like, when, when people show up that don't fit the mold, 
they automatically have more of a, an issue of, of fitting in and becoming the the thing. So I, I struggle a little bit with the comparison thing and um, I've just decided no wholeheartedly all in authentic. Here's who I am. And, uh, and it either will work or it won't. Uh, but at least that way, I, I know that it's, it's not me bending or wearing masks to code switch my way to a, to a particular position. This is great stuff, Rebecca. I, <laughs> I mean, good. I'm, I'm glad you like it. I feel like you and I come from very, very different backgrounds. Um, yeah. Probably probably could not be more different, but we <laughs> share so many of the same values and so many of the same core stuff. Uh, what, what do you think causes stuff like that? Because you're from, you're, you're a Yankee that's now down here in the South, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you're I'm, a female, I'm a male, but I feel like we've probably got more in common than we have differences. You know, I think that's the human condition. And I, I, it's, it's one of the things that I hope some of my work helps people recognize is that at the end of the day, take the skin off, take off the layers of, of all the labels that we, that we put on, um, of black, white, male, female, non-binary, whatever, and just recognize that so many of the stories that we're telling, so many of the experiences that we're having, so many of those voices in our head that are saying, you're not enough. They're common, right? They're just, they're just the human experience because we've, we've had to survive. And so, um, you know, I, I'm a true believer that as much as the brain is built to protect us, it is also built to connect us. And it's why we end up well, and this is this is a whole other topic. I don't mean to go down a rabbit hole, but it's why we end up on these little devices all day, every day, right? When we're sad, when we're feeling lonely, we're we're feeling isolated. We get on, we get onto social media, right? We're we're trying to connect with people, and I think one of the the big problems or the scary things there is think about when you post on social media, right? It's like when you're like sipping champagne from the Eiffel Tower, you're like. Woo! And think about when you're scrolling through social media It's like you're, you're sad, you're lonely, or you're bored and you're sitting there and then you're seeing all these amazing lives. <laughs> so again, that comparison thing can be really problematic for a lot of people. Yeah. There's definitely a comparison trap, but I, like I said, I don't feel like it's all bad. I feel like that, the, and maybe you would agree with me here that there are certain things that by comparing yourself to others that you can learn and uh, as long as you you do it with it, it's I love the the grocery store analogy where they say when you go to the grocery store, what do you get? What do you get off the shelves, Rebecca? You get what you need. You don't take everything yeah. off the shelves. Yeah. Right. So that's I feel like that's the problem with comparison. And that's a comparison trap is they take everything off the shelf and say they compare their best to our worst. And we end up in kind of these traps. Yeah, I'll push back a little because that's who I am. Um, do it. I I I like the idea. I think I think we agree on the idea, but I I'll challenge it just a little bit. I think you can certainly learn from people, right? You can look up to somebody and go, "Oh, I want to emulate that." Like I think about my father. My dad is one of the kindest people that I have ever met. Now, we may disagree on a million different things, but I want to emulate his kindness. And so I, I kind of in the back of my head, think about what, what would, what would Steve Heist do? You know, what, what would he be doing right now? And that to me still feels in integrity with who I am and who I am striving to be like. Um, but it doesn't mean that when I am 
not my my perfect level of kindness that I should judge myself harshly. Right. I think that's the problem with comparison is often, often we get into these negative spaces of, of, well, if I wasn't perfect, therefore I am right. This binary thinking of, well, they're successful. Therefore I must be not successful. I think there's right. a partial success to be talked about. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that too often we use comparison to beat ourselves up as opposed yeah. to using, using it to strive to be better or is. using it for a positive way instead of, Oh, you know what here, they, they're on the Eiffel tower. I'm bored. I'm scrolling my phone. Like you're talking about. Right. Right. Exactly. I know. I think, I think you're spot on with that. I think we, we can use it as a, as a positive mechanism, but, but use caution because your brain is a negativity seeking missile. And so anytime it can be like, Ooh, you're a terrible human being. You just messed that up. Your those voices will come up. And I thought that was only me. You're saying that's all humans that are like that, Rebecca? I'm telling you, that is, that is across the board. This is, <laughs> Jonathan, this is why I do the work that I do, because I I put myself in that category too. Like I, I do the work and it's still, I still have to keep those voices in check because they still come up like, you, did you, did people really stand and applaud you or they were they just happy that they, you were getting off the stage? <laughs> right? Like it is a constant battle. It's a constant battle. Or they really liked the the change in dress, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> By the way, that was <laughs> that was amazing. If if, if you guys if you have not seen her TED talks, you've got to log in, check those out. Uh, both so, of them, both of them are great. Thanks, Jonathan. Actually, I should point out to your listeners that the the one you're referencing is actually my favorite one, um, but it is one that isn't seen as often. So I appreciate that you noticed. I did an on stage change, baby. That was. Man, that was uh, that was fun. <laughs> are are you a a secret quick dress magician or whatever? What are they called? No, I'm not. I have I had my best friend behind the curtain just like throwing clothes on me. <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, I actually. So fun fun aside, I will try to make this very quick, and you can cut this if you want. But I had the opportunity to meet David Copperfield literally last weekend. Wow! And it was one of those like. It was an awe moment um, because, you know, you see these people at their at their top of their game, their success, their the pinnacle. I mean, you you talk about magic. The word that you think of or the person you think of is Copperfield, right? right. Maybe, but Copperfield. And I, I tell this story to say it was also one of the saddest moments of my life because I realized he's a deeply sad person. With all of his success, I mean, this guy is worth a billion dollars. He's married to a model. He's, you know, like he's got all of the outside measures of success and he's doing two shows a day in Vegas. You think he needs that money? I think he's deeply lonely. And I think so many of us on these rapid rises to success end up forgetting, you know, our own definitions. And in particular for Copperfield, I think about how frequently we equate our own self-worth with what we do rather than who we are. And, you know, who is he? If he's not doing magic, who is David Copperfield? Well, I imagine he's a lovely human being, but I also imagine that it's really difficult for him to stop because if we wrap our entire identity around the thing we do. <laughs> he feels like he always has to be on. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, there's my there's we went from the magical transition of of quick stage changes to to my <laughs> maybe too emotional story of David Copperfield, but it was no. Uh, 
I appreciate you sharing that. And it actually makes kind of a good segue in our into the next question, which you touched on it earlier, how you define success. Let's delve into yeah. that. How does Rebecca Heiss define success? Yeah, it's wholeheartedness and joy. Um, it's spending the majority of my time doing things that bring me joy and uh, where I could be present and wholehearted. And um, one of my favorite quotes from David White is that the cure for exhaustion is not rest, it's wholeheartedness. And I think that's so true. You know, it, we're, we're exhausted all the time because we're not living in integrity. We're not living in, in where what brings us joy. We're scattered. We're doing all these things um, to achieve some level or some measure of success that somebody else has defined. So for me, it's it's wholeheartedness and joy. How do you capture that? How do you chase wholeheartedness and joy, Rebecca? Hmm, right there. I think I don't chase it. <laughs> okay. I think I experience it. I think I, I try to be very present um, to the moment and say, like right now, this interview brings me joy. So that's when, great. It brings me joy too. Yeah. Like when you asked, I was like, yeah, let's do that. That is, I had to sit with it for a second because I say no to a lot. Um, and I think that's one of the keys, right? I say no to a lot. I am super honored. Right. <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. Please be honored for taking my time. No, it's not like that. It's, it's more a, um, a recognition that anytime we're saying yes to things that we don't really want to do, we're not wholehearted about, uh, we're really saying no to ourselves. And I think it's so important to recognize if you're not saying no, you're saying no to somebody. And that no is usually to yourself. Wow. So, um, so yeah, for me, you know, I, I try and exercise a lot of JOMO instead of FOMO, you know, jo- <laughs> JOMO is the joy of missing out. So when I am fully engaged and I'm living wholeheartedly and I'm doing the thing that I want to do, like right now I'm missing out on some things and I'm joyful about it. Like, that's great. Because we really can only be present and committed to one thing at a time. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's my definition of success. I love that, Rebecca. And I feel like that's the first time I've ever heard. You may be saying yes to someone else, but you may be saying no to yourself. Right. How heavy is that? Big one. It's a big one because I mean, ultimately what that means is that you value somebody else's time, worth, opinion, something more than you. And that's a tough realization to, to reckon with, right? That's, that's hard. If you had to boil down the, Hey, here's the one thing that I want to make sure that the listeners get, what's that one thing for you, Rebecca? Don't die with your symphony still inside of you. That's it. It's going all in. It's, it's realizing that you have a unique music, you have a unique song and like as cheesy as the like, Dance like nobody's watching. No, sing that song. Sing that song authentically, wholly, fully in, because otherwise you're you're missing the cost of your inactions, right? You're really missing the cost of your inactions. And so in the back of my head, I have this silent siren of regret just constantly on the alert. Like, am I going to regret that? Am I going to regret that? Again, I think that's that's it. Just go all in. Go all in. Go all in. Because again, it's like when you when you fear less, right? This is my whole messaging. When you fear less, you're actually opening the opening the door to so much more, right? More abundance, more connections, more possibilities, more productivity, more success, more joy, more all of the things. Um, but fear is really the thing that that holds us back. So go all in. 
Have you ever read the book, The Secret, Rebecca? Oh, yeah, I have. I have. Are I have you a some... fan? Uh, yes. Yes. And. No. Yes. And um, so here's here's the one problem that I have with The Secret. I think it's great stuff. Right. This the whole energy and vibrations and law of attraction and it, what you put out comes back. Yeah, to some extent, but it's actionable. You can't sit there and say, okay, I just, I want a million dollars. I just, I'm going to attract a million dollars. And I think that's the message that a lot of people got from that book is like, I can attract anything into my life. Well, not if you just sit there, you can't, right? <laughs> right? It does require some work on your part, some action on your part. Um, but I, I do like some of the concepts in it. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason that that what you said even reminded me of that book is because she talks about different energies and she talks about the lowest form of energy is fear and yeah. how the, high, the highest form of energy is love. And really love or fear is just the absence of love. She And maybe, maybe that's wrong there, but I think that it's just coming from a Christian background, mm-hmm. we're taught that love conquers all fear. Yep. Right. So, I mean, I, I think that there's truths that we hear in different society and then we hear that. And then, of course, we want to say, well, let me use that to divide people instead of unify them. Let me use that to judge people instead of, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. forgive. And uh, the, the, sometimes we we don't understand what love means, yeah. but how how do we conquer those fears? What what are some of those other hidden fears that are inside of us, Rebecca? Yeah. Before I answer that question, I want to reflect on what you just said, if you're, if you're all right with it, because I I couldn't agree more. It's funny. I was just with my speaking coach this past week and we're working on persona and he's like, really like you're the doctor, you're the scientist, you're the, he's like, but honestly, Rebecca, you're love. Like I'm a love, I'm a lovey bug. Like I'm like, Oh, come here. Let me out. I, and that's, that's a, that's a point of fear for me. I'm like, oh, but they'll think I'm weak. They think I'm soft. And I'm, and I really had to work through that because to your point, it is, it is when, when you love, like all fear disappears, right? It is, it is truly powerful. And I think fear is so contagious. And we've seen that, especially in the last few years, how contagious fear can be, but so is love. So's joy, so's happiness. All of those positive things are just as contagious. So, um, so yeah, that that would be my message to the world, right? Like when right. you when you uh, this as long as we're talking energy, I think this is a cool experiment. When you pluck the string of a of a violin and it's tuned to another violin, and that other violin is across the room, the other violin will vibrate with the same frequency, right? The same freaking note will play. And that to me is like, okay, so where are you vibrating? Are you vibrating out of fear? Are you vibrating in love? And if you can play the note of love, if you can play that symphony of love, you're inviting others to join you in. So it's not just, it's not just important for our own lives. When we make our world a better place, we make the whole world a better place. Yeah. I mean, look, if, if I can become vulnerable enough to share my story, to be like, oh, look, I have those thoughts too. Then you're like, oh my gosh, really? Me too, right? We open the door for others to actually have that that same experience of love, that same experience of I'm not alone, of connection, and and that's something that our brain craves really deeply, and our and our hearts and our souls and whatever else you want to call it, like that is that is human. So speaking of those connections and being real, can you share a story, whether it be a recent or one throughout your journey that you came upon a challenge or a struggle that you went through and how you overcame it 
so that our listeners can understand, first of all, they're not alone, but then maybe get some lessons from that story of overcoming. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I told you that I just blew up my life one day, right? That I went home and divorced my husband. And yeah. uh, and I think I think that's probably that was probably my biggest struggle. There's a lot. There's been a lot of struggles, but that was one of my bigger struggles. And, um, you know, having. I, I'm a big believer in love. I, I work really hard on love. So having a marriage fail was was not a a simple choice or a decision. And then, you know, doing these really ridiculous things like quitting my job and selling my house, I quickly realized I'm like, I'm not independently wealthy. I don't have a place to live. I've got responsibilities. I've got a dog. Like what am I, what am I doing with my life? And here's what I learned from that. I finally had to ask for help. And I ended up, I was in a hotel for a while, like trying to figure things out. Things were just falling apart around me. And, and I, I rented this Airbnb and I basically ran out of money. I was like, okay, look, I, I can't pay you guys anymore, but I need some help. How can I, what can I do to, to earn my keep here? And the kindness of strangers is something I will never forget. These, this couple had me work their farm and, uh, and I, I got to know the locals and it really, it became this community of support for me. And I think what it required was me literally taking off the armor of, of somebody who had it all together and saying, Oh my gosh, I do not have anything. It was surrender. Right. And, and being able to surrender, being able to, to say, I'm, I'm lost. (laughs) I'm, I'm absolutely lost. And, I don't know, financially, mentally, physically, spiritually, I don't know the next step that really allowed and drew people to into my life that uh, I'll say saved me. There's there's a, there's one more story that actually occurred to me as I was telling that, that I'll, I'll follow this up on. My husband and I had never intended on becoming, I'm remarried, <laughs> sorry, should skip to the good part, um, which is, which is, all of all of those struggles led me to a community, to a space, to some authentic realizations that allowed me to truly pursue who I am and what I what I ultimately wanted. And about uh, two years after my divorce, I'm sitting on an airplane and my husband sat down next to me, my future husband. So we we had never intended on becoming pregnant. I've never wanted kids ever. Um, so imagine our surprise when, I I became pregnant last year. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. We're going on an adventure. Yay, here we go. Um, and my husband being the amazing man he is was super supportive. And honestly, I was like, this is, in- this is actually an incredible journey. I, people had told me that, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's facts, not feelings. And I felt this for the first time. And I became really obsessed. I was like, oh, look at the poppy seed and the grape and the, the, it's now, it's a lime. Oh my God. It's like a freaking cantaloupe. This is incredible. And just before Christmas, we told our family, we picked out names. And just before Christmas, uh, I was in Cleveland and uh, doing a gig there. And I, I woke up the next morning uh, and realized that I'd lost my child. Uh, And by the time I got to the hospital, I was this cacophony of all of those automatic negative thoughts of like, you have failed, you're not enough, you've done something wrong, all of those, all of those awful stories that we tell ourselves. And um 
And it was so isolating and so alone because I, we don't talk about miscarriage the same way. We don't talk about any of these stories. And because of that, it's, it's extra isolating. And what I'll never forget is that despite the fact that I am still like raw with these emotions, the doctor came in, not, not in a white lab coat, not Dr. Smith, head of the Cleveland Clinic, Harvard graduate. He came in and he sat down at eye level with me and he said, Hey, I'm Bob. I'm going to take really good care of you. And that's it. I think that's, that's the lesson. To me, it's that we're not, we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to collect the degrees or be the be all end all. We just have to love and empathize and be there and have a moment of connection with other people. Because that to me is the greatest leadership lesson that I think I've ever learned. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Rebecca. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for witnessing it. I appreciate yeah. It. Yeah. We, we need each other, you know, that's we're, true. Not, we're not meant to live this life alone. And that's great. It, it does take, it does take some humility to lower our ego and lower our pride and ask for help. Yeah. But the truth is other people are, uh, they're waiting and they want to help. I think that most people, most of, most of the people out there are good people. They want to help us. They just don't, they don't even know that we, they don't even know we need the help though. Yeah. I 100% believe that. And I think, you know, in, in both instances, one in me surrendering and saying, I I need help. And the other, somebody recognizing they don't need to be the expert in the room. They don't need to be right. They need to get it right. And they need to come down to a level um, where I was to say, Hey, look, very basic. We're going to take care of you. I'm going to connect with you. And I think that's, that's the greatest power of becoming fearless, right? Is that when we fear less, when we don't feel like we have to prove ourselves or be something for somebody, we can show up all in and help others to fear less more, right? That doctor sat down with nothing to prove. And because of that, I was able to come out of my state of fear and just be present with him in that moment. That's a, that's a gift I won't, I won't soon forget. That's awesome. And that's, you just gave our listeners a gift. You've given me a gift, Rebecca, and I thank you for it. I appreciate yeah, that very much. Um, again, this is, this is the being wholehearted, you know, because people, other people, I haven't lost a child, but I've, you know, everyone goes through their own things. Yeah. And to exactly. know that we're not, we're not the only ones in this world going through stuff, you know, you, that that's why. You need to be kind. You need to be good to people because you don't, you never know what they're going through. You have no clue. You don't know. Everybody has a story that you don't know. And that's, yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. Wow. And uh, this is like, we're, we're here at the end and it's so hard for me to make a weird segue transition, but I'd love to, I'd love to know more about like, what can we, obviously this acuity app. Yeah. How, how can someone even find that? How can they get that? What if, if let's say just one of Jonathan's listeners said, Hey, I want to find out if I'm self-aware, am I in that 95% or am I in that 10%? Super easy. So you go to the app store, Apple or Android, doesn't matter in the app store. And you type in I C U E I T Y uh, 360 review app, IQity, and it will pop up and you can download it and you can get a free trial and check it out. It's like, I, I should know this. It's like four 99. It's not, it's not a huge investment. Um, right. 499 in order to find out 
truths yeah. about yourself. It's, I think it's worth it. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's you can definitely check that out. If you have questions or concerns or anything, you can always email me. Um, I'm very easy to find if you Google Rebecca Heiss or go to RebeccaHeiss.com or go to Instagram at Dr. Rebecca Heiss or you will find me. I will answer. Um, I really, I value connection, obviously. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, Jonathan will tell you, I, I will answer. Sometimes yeah. I answer while I'm running, which is <laughs> our pre-call, but, um, but I'll answer you. And uh, can you tell us about The Leap? Yeah, cool. Thanks for asking. So The Leap is my community for women specifically. Don't worry, guys. I'm not trying to be exclusive. I have something for you to do. Um, but right. The Leap is a, a place for professional women to gather and um, to go through some sort of transformational uh, work. So I do some coaching. We do some group coaching. Um, but we talk through identity fear, anxiety, stress, imposter syndrome, boundary setting, how to say no, and uh, ultimately positive manifestation, which is a little woo-woo, but okay. science back. So yeah, it's a- it's Well, that that opens us up to, we may have to have another episode where we talk about positive manifestation. I'd love oh, to talk I'm, more about that with you I'm sometime. all about that. Because listen, so- let me on that on that note, if you want to find out all of my views on on positive manifestation, you can check out Year of Happy. So yearofhappy.com is literally my life's work and it's free. I'm not I'm not charging people for this. It's it's like it's my gift to the world because why why can you I just you shouldn't charge people for happiness, right? But it's <laughs> it's a 52 week long program. Wow. Um, and so you will get emails and videos from me every single week. If you want to buy in, if you want to help support it, that's great. I'm I'm happy to do that. At, at certain levels, you'll get physical subscription boxes in the mail with challenges. Like this month, I think the box is, is full of goodies that you have to give away the entire box to strangers. So fun things like that. Wow. Uh, yeah. So year of happy, uh year of happy.com is is a uh, is my legacy at this point. That is so awesome. So definitely check her out on LinkedIn, check her out on RebeccaHeist.com. Uh, check out her YouTube channel. Check yep. out her TEDx talks. Rebecca Heiss is on Google. You can find her. She's not hiding. Uh, <laughs> she's got she's got a book. You can find it on her website at Amazon. You can find it in a lot of different places. Instinct. You ought to check it out. Rebecca Heiss, thanks for sharing. Thanks for being our guest today. Um, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you for having me on. All right, listeners, let's get out there and make our world, our country, and our community a better place. When you succeed, we all succeed. And as always, this is a friendly reminder that the left lane is for passing. So speed up or move over.